Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Live Talk. Hello, Dr. Blevins. How are you today? Um, I'm, I'm doing very I'm well. Thank you. Yeah, good. I'm hearing some uh, background noises. If there's somebody online, I would ask them to please resign with the same link uh, that we just uh, reposted on the website. So you'll be able to get uh, in the studio uh, through the audience channel. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, welcome everybody again. Let's just restart, I guess. <laughs> uh, this is uh, JD Fascinetti. I'm glad to uh, uh, that we are doing another one of these. We have not done a live talk in a few months, so we're happy to, to be able to do one. And I know that we have quite a few subjects to discuss. Uh, I know, Dr. Blevins, you have a few things you want to talk about. And But first, I'm going to ask you, how was the clinic this week? And I know you always have interesting patients and interesting cases to talk about. And was there anything this week that you would like to chat with us about? Oh, gosh, the week was full of things to discuss. Uh, saw a lot of interesting patients. I think I had about 44 visits in all. And, oh, wow. Uh, the, the interesting thing about pituitary patients, as you know, being one, is that it's not just one medical problem. Usually we have a tumor the tumor is either making too much hormone or no hormone, but it needs to be monitored. Consequences of therapy need to be monitored. And and uh, every patient has one or more hormone deficiencies and other yes. issues. So in the end, 45 patients is like seeing 160 because everybody has at least four medical uh, problems on their problem list that I'm following along. So it's a lot of work, but it was fun. Yeah. I always enjoy my work. I saw a lot of interesting uh, disease states, uh, interesting tumors, patient with ectopic ACTH hypersecretion and Cushing's, um, just all sorts of things. Probably the most interesting gentleman I saw was a, not because of his pituitary disease, but because of what he used to do. He's a helicopter pilot. Oh. And uh, he was actually a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Oh, and, wow. Uh, after a year of... Uh, of uh, flight training with the army uh, in the 60s actually set a helicopter down in Vietnam and uh, flew combat and rescue and general purpose and things like that. So it was interesting to hear of him and uh, you know how the spirit of invincibility that one has when you're in your early 20s and you're headed off to war that nothing's going to yeah. happen to me until two separate times he was shot while he was flying and threat oh comes through the through the aircraft to injure him once in the face and then he realized he could die doing this but he was fortunate enough to survive a, a profession that at time had a very high uh, death rate low survival mm -hmm. and uh, lives to this day with the same invincibility and it got me to thinking that if you go to if you go through life with a degree of invincibility and determination to survive, I think you're going to be a good patient when it comes to having pituitary disease. That's an interesting analogy. Yeah, it's been the case with him, you know. So um, yeah, I think that uh, when you when we think about a disease and illness, the illness is the overall manifestations, which takes into consideration the effects that the disease has not only on the individual's human body and physiology, but also on their mindset and on their family and their jobs, economic status, et cetera. 
and uh, people who have a degree of invincibility have good adaptation and uh, coping skills and uh, usually do I think better with disease and patients who don't have it. But yeah. I was thinking about those issues in relation to my visit with him this week. So it was quite quite interesting to talk to him about his uh, his experiences both before yeah. and after the war as a helicopter pilot. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you notice about his attitude towards the disease too. And I, I, if I remember correctly, those helicopters, Cobras were right. Cobra helicopters, the ones that. Were, yeah, he that flew were the, the he flew the Hueys, Hueys and Hueys and the Cobras. So they, yeah, they flew both. because the Hueys used to be uh, heavy, slow, and uh, loud. So yeah. they would take all kinds of hits when they landed to rescue people or. Uh, you know, to try to get them, pluck them out, or uh, or or bring supplies. So yeah, I'm sure that you know those yeah, guys had a... those guys had guts. That's for sure. Yeah, flying over a battlefield, or he talked about being in the Cobras, and sometimes you sort of roll inverted and then start a dive to your target. Yeah, uh, I've been inverted in military aircraft. I can't imagine being inverted in a helicopter, knowing that yeah. this might be your last dive. You know, you yeah. might be shot down or captured or a prisoner of war or whatever. So that's true. You were trying. You were trying to go to the Air Force, <laughs> right? To from as a in med, as medical in, after medical school and yeah. So yeah. during my after my residency, I actually had a training slot uh, guaranteed by the Air National Guard to be a fighter pilot in the Air Force and uh, as and a physician fact, also. Yeah, and would be a physician to the unit, but uh, would be a fully combat-ready fighter pilot. To get me to sign up, to, to entice me, yeah. to give me the incentive, they actually took me for a ride in F-4 Phantom, so I was in the backseat of a fighter jet for two hours. Oh, I bet you uh, that's an experience. Best flying day of my life. I was flying private aircraft at the time. Yeah. And uh, wow. could, uh, could barely afford to do that. Almost all the money I was making as a resident, I was putting towards rent and then flying. So uh, I'd learned to fly and just love to fly. So my goal was to fly military and I had that chance, but I decided to stick with medicine. And uh, I thought I'd put too much into it already, too much yeah. skin in the game, so to speak, as far as uh, education and training and medical school debt and things like yeah. that, that uh, to sort well, of uh, uh, walk away and go be a pilot in the Air Force and a doctor to a flight crew was not probably fulfilling my, uh, uh, I wouldn't say responsibilities, but maybe responsibilities is a good way to put it, responsibilities yeah. to society, to sort of uh, my devotion and dedication to caring for people. Shirking that responsibility, yeah. so. On behalf of all your patients, I'm glad you made that decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a good career. I still I still love military aviation, and I look at videos every day about yeah. fighter jets. And you know, I probably would have enjoyed being an naval aviator as well. But uh, yeah. it's sort of interesting to think about the what one could have done. I'm, I'm oh, satisfied with the outcome, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's always good. The what if scenarios. Yeah. So. So uh, I know you wanted to chat a little bit about um, the issues with insurance. So why don't we why don't we jump on that and and chat a little bit about maybe your experiences? I know you had some frustrations this week, and uh, in yeah, general, what's going on? Several frustrations, not only as a physician but also as a patient. You know, and uh, you know, just sort of you you see both sides of it when you're a doctor who has to go for some tests, right? Yes. And uh, I'll talk about my personal experience as a, as a patient uh, first, because hopefully some people can learn from this and take some care. Um, 
And then I'll talk about the most egregious example I've ever seen of an insurance company trying to beat a patient out of treatment. So, hmm. so my own experience is that uh, uh, there, there's an old saying that uh, a doctor who takes care of him or herself has a full for a patient and a full yeah. for a doctor. I've, so we've heard that. Know, <laughs> I tore a meniscus in my knee. Uh, I've had some musculoskeletal problems from athletics when I was young. And uh, after the torn meniscus, I, I wrote a prescription for myself to take indomethacin, uh, which is a fantastic anti-inflammatory and painkiller. After weeks of not being able to hardly walk, I could walk again. I could be active. I had no pain. I felt like I was 20 years younger because of the, the different aches and pains that you get as a 62-year-old suddenly were gone, right? So... I weaned myself off of it to a dose of maybe one tablet every day or every other day. And then uh, I did some work in the garden and had uh, lifted a lot of flagstones, twisting and turning and, and uh, felt miserable. So I started the endomethacin again. And I was taking two tablets three times a day for probably about three weeks. I went to see my internist for a routine checkup and my blood pressure was 150 over 110. Wow. That's uh, high. Which was very dangerous. And uh, she read me the riot act about limiting salt and things like that and uh, said we had to recheck it. I got a blood pressure cuff. It was still high. And then um, I realized it, maybe it's the endomethacin. Uh, she, she wanted to get some blood work because I had the hypertension. My, my kidney function was 50% of normal for my age. Mm. I was oh, shocked because you know, I've certainly seen people with kidney failure in my career and I don't want to dance down that primrose path, you know? So yeah. I was, I was shocked and I, I realized it was probably the medication. So I, I've stopped the medication, blood pressure's down. I have to repeat the kidney function test this week. Uh, but in the process of determining whether the drug had caused, irrever caused irreversible damage of the kidney, I, I had to get in a, a kidney ultrasound. So I've done thyroid ultrasounds. I know what ultrasounds are. I know how much the machines cost. I know what, how long it takes to do them. And I get this, I get this call from the hospital that says, that'll be $5,000, please. <laughs> for you? Out of your mind, you know, $5,000 for an ultrasound. And they said, yeah, that's the total bill. Do you want us to bill your insurance? I said, of course. They said, okay, that'll be $1,200. <laughs> I'm thinking like, that's ridiculous, you know? You yeah. a whole body CT or brain MRI for $5,000. The reading is probably a double that. But um, I was astounded. I said, just bill the insurance. Whatever they don't pay, I'll pay. Well, I got the bill this morning. It was $325, which seemed reasonable to me. Yeah. But uh, it was sort of like this whole, it brought my attention. That when you're a patient, the last thing you want is financial stress, right? You know, I'm a physician. Oh, yeah. People yeah. say, oh, yeah. you can pay for that. That's a lot of money. It doesn't matter what kind of money you make. That's a lot of money for an ultrasound. And I told them it was highway robbery. <laughs> they laughed. Um, but it sort of made me a little bit more cognizant of the journey that patients have to go through trying to deal with this and trying to figure out what's going on with my kidneys. Yeah. Well, we hear, as you know, from the patient standpoint, the cost issues and the access issues. Uh, you know, when you think about uh, the copays and even that Medicare patients have to endure uh, in medications that are expensive, you know, we've heard of copays for people on a monthly basis, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars yeah. on Medicare. And, you know, many of these of people on Medicare are also on fixed incomes. Imagine 
having to pay seven hundred dollars for one medication copay a month, yeah, and and getting incredible. a medic, it's incredible. It's so it's yeah. so out of whack with everything else that it just uh, anyway. As you know, we've been working hard to understand the issues, the different players, how it, and and are involved in in many uh, uh, efforts to see where we should apply pressure as advocates and mm-hmm. as as to to make some changes to try to make some changes the you know the issues are daunting and in my experience has been that the closer you get to trying to understand an answer the grayer it gets yeah. <laughs> so the more and difficult to understand it is because there's all this complicated you know and middlemen and i mean we'll we'll talk a little bit about later some of that but um yeah why don't you tell us about your well, your, so my your experience, my feeling about all of that was there are three lessons to take from that. Number one is doctors and nurses should not treat themselves. Go see your doctor. Let your doctor treat your pain syndrome or whatever else it is. No, no more of that for me. I, I never treat my family members, but this was kind of, I crossed a line. You know, I'm yeah. paying for it. You know, it's the foolish doctor, right? So yeah. This the second lesson I think is that if you're out there and you're on a chronic anti-inflammatory non-steroidal drug. You got to see your doctor, get your blood pressure checked, check your kidney function. If they're abnormal, you got to stop the medicine and come up with plan B. My plan B is I feel pretty good, but I'm having a little bit of aches and pains, but I'm just going to live with it. Yeah. And then the third lesson is um, it's better to sort of, as I learned from my experience, let them push it through the insurance company and see what happens because the answer is going to be probably better. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the $300 was better than the, uh, the $5,000 answer and then the $1,200 answer. So always trust that process to work. I think that uh, the, the other experiences I've had this week that relate to insurance companies and uh, especially when it comes to authorizing therapies. First yeah. off, and there are several different uh, facets of this. The first thing I'll say is that... Uh, this is not the way it started. Insurance companies were to sort of share the cost and the expense. And then in the 1990s, late 1990s, they started overseeing the work that doctors and patients do to try to eliminate fraud and waste and things like that. And that's a big problem because now they're involved in medical decision-making where they have no business being because they don't have medical degrees. They come at this from the perspective of let's spend as little money as is possible on healthcare so that we can have money to do other things with, whether it be buy real estate, build buildings, buy art, pay shareholders or whatever. In the late 1990s, there were some calculations done and it looked at what happens to the premium dollars that come to an insurance company. And there was this this term called a loss ratio that was thrown about. And someone once asked, what is a loss ratio? The insurance company said the loss ratio is the amount of money they actually spend on healthcare relative to the proportion of dollars they bring in. And the number was 19%. So less than 20% of premium dollars to go into a, a pool to pay for healthcare at the time were being spent on actual healthcare. The rest of it administrative costs within the business itself, uh, uh, investments, shareholders, yeah. whatever, which is totally ridiculous to me. So, I, And I think a third-party system would be worse. To, or, uh, a a single-payer system would be worse. Uh, 
but this is how bad it is with this the the third party mm-hmm. payer system that we have now. So their their mindset is to save money. Years ago, I was recruited by a uh, a review company to review cases for an insurance company uh, related to pituitary drugs, and they asked yeah. me to to do that. And I was very altruistic and thought, oh, this is great. I told the guy on the phone who was doing an interview. This is great. I'll be able to help patients get the treatments they need. Uh, so, you know, with my expertise in pituitaries, he says, no, 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 doctor, you, you have a misconception about this. We need you to deny 75 to 80% of claims to help control costs. And I said, there's no way in the world I'm going to participate in that. And he said, this is the requirement. You'll get a grade card. If you let everything go through, they're going to fire you. And I said, I don't want to work for you people. To start with. Yeah, because you're the problem. You know, this whole notion, this whole sense of the patient doesn't need this because the insurance company doesn't want to pay for it is the problem. That's compounded by the fact that over the past 15 years or so, people have started writing what they call guidelines for treatment. And it's a group of doctors, many of them who are pointy-headed academic types and don't see a lot of patients who sit around and, and write up guidelines so the, so other doctors who don't see a lot of patients in that field can have a guidance on how to proceed with treatment of disease states. The problem is that works if you're training people who really shouldn't be taking care of those patients anyways, instead of sending them to the, to the, to the uh, experts. So what happens is the insurance companies read the guidelines and they use them against us for patient care, even against me. Mm-hmm. And the most egregious example I've seen of that is that we didn't used to have any trouble getting drugs approved, but it's gotten worse every year for the past 10 years, especially in the past two to three years. So we, we write a prescription for a drug. It has to be approved by the insurance company. They send it for review. They usually appeal it. We, we appeal that or they reject it. We appeal that. Sometimes we go through two or three levels of appeals. Ultimately, we have to fight to get the drug approved. And these guidelines are out there and they use them against patients. They use a guidelines meant for a population against individual patients who've already made a decision with their doctor and, and their family that uh, uh, regarding a treatment. So insurance companies make stuff up all the time. And the thing that happened earlier this week, or maybe it was late last week now, that uh, literally just sent me into a fit was the insurance company said, this was a patient with a pituitary tumor who had surgery. Based on those two facts alone, there's a 65 to an 80% chance that the patient has growth hormone deficiency. Big pituitary tumor, surgery, 85% likelihood of surgery. So one of the things that we think about is Bayesian statistics or theories in that the probability of a test result being abnormal depends on the pretest probability of the disease. So the higher the pretest probability, the more likely that that test result is really abnormal. Uh, if the probability of a disease is lower, the more likely that test result could be a false positive test. So for mm-hmm. example, in a patient like mine, 65 to 80% likelihood of a pretest probability of having growth hormone deficiency, when you do a stimulation test, if the growth hormone doesn't rise above three, that means the patient has growth hormone deficiency and you don't have any erroneous tests here. You can bank on that. Furthermore, when you have multiple pituitary deficiencies, it confirms that. 
So the, we, we saw a patient, did the stimulation test, found the equithelin deficiency, sent, it, sent the prescription to the insurance company and the pharmaceutical company that they supported. And we got back a reviewer's report denying treatment, saying this patient has a low probability of disease. And in that case, you have to use a cutoff of one instead of three. And the patient had a result of 1.2. So they were saying the patient didn't qualify for treatment. It's total bogus BS that has nothing to do with any guideline that's ever been established, but it's insurance company, A, not understanding the disease process, trying to tell me and the patient that the patient had a low probability of disease when it was high, and, and B, using inventing this scheme to be able to get the patient to not be on growth hormone, to try to cheat them out of therapy. And it, it made me thinking when, when I look at this in conjunction with other recent machinations that insurance companies are doing and the amount of time that my staff spend getting routine drugs approved for people, it made me believe it's time for an all out war on these companies that deny care to patients uh, because yeah. they're not the physicians. They may be gatekeeping the money, but the original goal of insurance was to have somebody to pay the care and to share the cost recognizing if you don't have medical needs, your premium dollars go to someone who does. Ultimately, we're all going to have medical needs and someone's paying the end of the pot. Yeah. And since they spend so little of it on medical care anyways, they need to spend a greater fraction than 19% on health care. So yeah. I think it's time to organize physicians, patients. And, and I encourage people out there, if you have a denial, you need to talk to your insurance company. If they don't listen to you, you need to get an attorney to write them a letter using language such as it's inappropriate for you to be practicing medicine and interfering with decisions that doctors and patients need. It's gone to the point now where we tell, tell insurance companies, we're going to have a patient contact an attorney that they have no business practicing medicine and overseeing a specialist's care. That usually gets it approved. But yeah. we have to do that fight daily. And I think that we need to cut down the number of battles that are happening by having patients and other bodies and at Pituitary World News, we need to figure out how we can get involved in this yeah. as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that is, well, you know, as, as I was mentioning earlier, we've been working in the background with, with organizations and uh, groups that are looking at all these access issues and, and trying to understand it. And, uh, and I would say that, you know, drug manufacturers are in this group as well because what we've heard is that the, uh, the 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 substantial profits that are being made on on uh, drugs are from you know the middle man you know the person that or the groups and organizations that get between the drug and the patient. Exactly. And with that, we can count insurance companies and now these uh, new organizations called PBNs. Uh, prescribing uh, these are uh, uh, pharmacy benefit managers that are actually intermediaries between, um, you know, the manufacturer and the the um, the patient, the, the user, and that's created all kinds of opportunities to increase prices and, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, plug the system. Let's say, so that is a system that needs to be you know, looked at and, uh, and we've got to figure out how to simplify it or give patients and organizations that want to deal with it the tools to do it, 
to, for example, you know, if we're going to go to Congress, what are the issues that need to be discussed? If people are going to be activists about this, how, what's the best way to affect change? Where, what is the action going to create the most, what action is going to create the most impact? So I think that is a really good idea, Dr. Blevins, to get, uh, to get people not only aware of what's going on, because I think every patient that has uh, to deal with specialty pharmacies and with uh, uh, medications, and, and as you know, pituitary medications can be very expensive, has dealt through their, through their process, through their life with, with a pituitary disease, have dealt with, that, with some of this. Uh, so it affects everybody. Um, so yeah, I think we, I think uh, for all of you uh, listening and for you listening to the podcast after we publish this, um, you know, stay tuned for some of these tools so we can all work together. Uh, it's amazing what happens, I was going to say, when everybody sings from the same sheet of music, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a nice <laughs> so, chorus. Yeah. It's a nice chorus. So that's yeah. what we need to do is we need to write the music that, yeah. or, or at least help writing the music so everybody can sing. It's like a well-tuned uh, symphony orchestra. Every yeah. instrument has a piece, but everybody's working together. Yeah, everybody so, plays a role working together. I like that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's and, you know, just a brainstorm about it. So where does it, where do we focus? You know, that's, that's what we need to do, but we need to hear from people yeah. about their ideas. And I think it's like, sure, you have to fight your individual battle, but you have to be firm with those insurance companies and ultimately yeah. they'll get the message. But yeah. it's probably every time you have to appeal a drug, you report that to the insurance commissioner of your state who oversees yeah. medical insurance because they yeah. have an important role in overseeing these insurance companies and keeping them in check. Yeah. Um, I yeah, and, it, and it, doctors need to stop writing guidelines, for example, because that's what the insurance companies are using to and misinterpreting to deny people health care. We yeah. all need to play a role in it. Yeah, yeah. So it, uh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, we're, we're continually doing research, and the, the more we find out, the more we'll publish to make it as transparent as possible. But as, as I was saying, um, the closer you get to, to try to answer a question, the grayer it gets, the answer. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think, purposely complicated, so it's difficult to fix. And the people that are benefiting from it are benefiting with outst amazing profits. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's just it's when you look at the profit margins, are just like, oh my god, it's, you know, you could lower some of this and still make a lot of money, and you know, do a lot of good for a lot of people for on access to medication. So, yeah. I, th I think the system it's all screwed up to, for lack of a better word but it's it's very costly and in my practice i would guesstimate that we're successful in getting 97 percent of approvals ultimately approved we probably yeah. lose three percent of the time patients get angry with us but we can't yeah. we can't do it you know we already spend about we we figured this out several years ago it's probably higher now several years ago my practice alone one doctor uh managing a, a big host of pituitary patients, we spend about $150,000 a year several years ago just for the authorization process. Yeah. We don't get reimbursed for that. That's behind the scenes money. People say, what the heck did my doctor charge so much money for? What well, pays for the staff who are doing these things behind it to make sure you get your drugs, you know? And yeah. uh, 
you know, it's not like I'm making a ton of money doing this line of work. It gets very tiring as a physician, though, to deal with this because some patients are upset with us. We have all this work to do. And, you know, to be honest, sometimes I think, well, maybe even this week, maybe I should stop prescribing these drugs. Maybe I should send patients to their primary care physician to get their treatment. I can provide consultation and advice. Yeah. But that's that's the wrong thing to do. This yeah. week alone, I've probably started... Uh, I don't know, four people on growth hormone and send another four for dynamic testing to see if they have growth hormone deficiency because I believe in growth hormone and all these other therapies for pituitary patients. And I don't think your general endocrinologist who manages diabetes patients is going to take the time to, to give a, a darn about all these things. And they're going to say too much work, too much of a waterfall to climb upwards like a salmon trying to go upstream. I don't have the energy or the power go see your pituitary doctor. So we yeah. have to do this for our patients and um, it, have to be the advocates. But at, at times you really want to just say, I need a break from this. I can't do this any longer. Uh, is growth hormone a, a difficult drug or is it is that is that something specific to growth hormone or do you see it across the board? We see it across In your the clinic. board. Yeah, we see it across the board. We see we we try to start drugs for Cushing syndrome, and the insurance company tells us we have to use a non-FDA approved drug because it's cheaper, or we'll choose drug A, and they want us to use drug B, even when it's not the right drug to use in that particular situation. So they don't understand individualization of care yeah. based on specific patient needs. They're using these ridiculous guidelines, but well, using... I was going to ask you about that. You know, the guidelines are guy. There's been it seems to be we see it in the literature. So much yeah. time spent on guidelines, and people are going, well, you know, you should do this, 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 and this first. But yeah. the reality is that every patient is different. That's right. And... Guidelines work if every patient were identical, but they're not. Yeah. And, yeah. And... One drug might not be appropriate for another patient. Yeah. The other thing is the there's more to the guidelines. So there are the guidelines that are written, as I was discussing before, by groups of physicians who think they want to preach to the world how to do this. Insurance companies not only use them against their the patients and yeah. the, the, the decision-making, but some of these pharmacy benefits will do their own guidelines based on pharmacoeconomics. Well, yeah, we understand what they mean here, but we think drug A is cheaper, so we're going to recommend they use drug A. We're going to deny drug B. And uh, as a physician, you're left with, I don't want my patient on that drug. It might work in 20% of people, but I want to choose a drug because of the severity of illness. It's going to work in 85% of people. And uh, yet we're forced to use a drug that's probably not going to work very well. I'm, I remember when we started you on treatment for your acromegaly. Mm -hmm. I wanted to use Pegvisimont or yeah. Somavert. And they said we had to use Sandistatin or uh, Somatulene. And we started you on Somatulene. Yeah. We did you, treated you for six to eight months. It didn't months. work. And you work. knew it was not going to work. I mean, wasted, I know that. wasted eight months and, you know, several thousand dollars of copay for and you. Eight, and several eight eight miserable months because I felt like shit, to be honest yeah, with you. exactly. We put you on the drug I wanted you on. It worked in six weeks and you've been controlled since. It's like, yeah, keep the yeah. insurance companies out. They cost How? you money and they cost you time and health and they cost yeah. me frustration. And anxiety. Yeah, because I mean, they wanted to beat, beat you out of, beat, they wanted to beat some more dollars into their bucket instead of spending them on your health care. Yeah. So it is preposterous. You know, we've yeah. got to yeah. Fix you know, we, as you know, we hear the stories. People write to us, uh, and uh, you know, you've seen the comments. It's just, you know, people are going through this constantly. How much? I mean, another question, which is related. 
how many people do you see that have been on a medication for, let's say, two or three years, it's working well, and the next time that it goes for, for to re-up you know, the medication mm-hmm. every year, they come back saying, no, you should be using something else. How much happens, of that do you get? It happens all the time. So that, to me, is preposterous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's to me, that absolutely is, preposterous. Yeah. You know, the, here's another one is that we'll have a man on testosterone and he w- was hypogonadal from his pituitary disease. He's needed testosterone for 15 years and we have him on drug. So his levels are normal. The insurance yeah. company will say, oh, the level's normal. He doesn't need testosterone. We're not going to approve it. It's like, well, That's what, funny. The, what the heck do you want me to do? Stop it and make him hypogonadal and give him symptoms and all these things to prove that he still needs it. No, that's not how this works. Yeah. Are you going to have a blood pressure, a patient with malignant hypertension, stop their blood pressure problems and risk a stroke to prove they still need their antihypertensive? No, that's not how this is supposed to work. So when, yeah. when we get these people who have a financial interest in keeping money to themselves and not spending on patients after patients have been paid premium dollars, it's a mess. And yeah. everybody says, this is why we need government support healthcare. That will be the worst. Yeah, uh, the government already limits who can get a PSA. They after a certain age, they don't let men get PSAs. They don't care if you have prostate cancer; you're going to live and die from it. Who cares? Yeah. Breast yeah, that, breast mammograms not after a certain age because they don't want to allow that. Um, the same thing happens for other certain tests like colonoscopy. After a certain age, you know they're not going to pay for it. So, one of these days they're going to say after 65 you don't get dialysis, you know, or you don't you don't get your pneumonia treated, or you don't get to go to the ICU after age 70, you know. Yeah. So when we when we put a single entity such as a government entity that wants to use money for other things in charge of this, it's going to be worse than it is now. Yeah, and I think that's the case with these PBMs. You know, they put the fox in charge of the hen house, and. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, becomes, I think, a humongous conflict of interest. Uh, and then yeah. I think patients, physicians, and I would say, you know, in, in many ways, uh, drug manufacturers get affected because of it. Uh, I think the, the, the simpler, the better. And now it's just extremely complicated. Yeah, uh, I've, heard, so. I've heard from patients who go to the VA medical centers that, uh, you know, they're and physicians that there's restriction on which drugs you can use. Yeah. And if you look in the, if you look at the Kaiser system, for example, as a, as a single payer system, yeah. they restrict what their doctors can do. First off, uh, you only get a seven minute visit with your doctor. Second yeah. is there are certain drugs they won't use or can't use uh, because of uh, cost controls and things like that. Yeah. So, Have you ever seen issues with non FDA approved medications that are substandard or issues with substandard drugs or that don't work as well? Well, the interesting thing about that is that most of the time when physicians use non FDA approved drugs, it means it's not approved for that particular use. Oh, we, I get it. Okay. We find out that it works, so we use it. So, for example, yeah, off label. It's yeah, like the off label. Yeah. So, like ketoconazole is a drug that we can use to block cortisol production by the adrenal gland and treat Cushing's. It was not approved by the FDA for that. It was approved to treat fungal infections. And in yeah. the 1950s, 60s, they recognized people taking this drug got adrenal insufficiency uh, because of high doses, because it was blocking cortisol production. So a group of endocrinologists said, oh, we have a great drug for Cushing. So it just was used and studied and and prescribed. And you know, up until several years ago, there wasn't an FDA-approved drug for Cushing's until a couple of companies, several companies came along 
to to develop some adrenal synthesis inhibitors before that. Uh, no, it's a Corsep had mifepristone that was approved for Cushing's, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so now there's a company that makes a drug called levoketoconazole, which yes. is an isomer of the regular ketoconazole. The regular ketoconazole has levo and dextro ketoconazole in okay. it. So they, they took the dextro out thinking that was going to cause all the liver toxicity. And now we have levoketoconazole that's approved, you know, along with the psilidrostat as another one that's approved. There are a couple unapproved, like materapone is a drug that some people might take for Cushing's. That's not yeah. approved by the FDA either. Yeah, for that Even, specific use. Yeah, even yeah. estrogen use. Estrogens in postmenopausal women have been shown to benefit a lot of things, improve memory, improve bone density. Probably the most common reason postmenopausal women go on estrogens is to improve bone mineral density. That's mm -hmm. not an FDA-approved indication. The FDA-approved yeah. indication is to relieve hot flashes. Yeah. And, and most of the people who are taking it probably long ago stopped having their hot flashes. So. You know, so that's what sort of off-label use or non-approved indications means most of the time. Yeah, um, companies can get in trouble. Like speaking to circle back to the non-steroidal drugs, uh, Celebrex was a drug that was approved for arthritic problems and inflammation, etc. And it turned out that people using this drug had a low incidence of colon polyps. So drug companies. Uh, representatives started touting this drug as a way to prevent colon polyps, and lots of people were taking this drug to prevent colon polyps, getting side effects. It resulted in a lot of trouble at yeah. the time, you know, uh, and uh, you know settlements and things like that because it was used and recommended and taught to be used off-label. Mm -hmm. Now there are strict guidelines on how a pharmaceutical company can actually uh, advertise and market a drug. And they have to yeah. stay very narrowly within the guidelines. Physicians, however, will recognize benefits and use drugs even a little bit off guidelines sometimes. Yeah. Uh, should we be doing that? I don't know. Uh, I'm certainly not going to deny my postmenopausal woman with osteoporosis an estrogen prescription. Yeah. Or if a patient wants to use ketoconazole because they have no financial wherewithal or insurance coverage for the more expensive drugs, I'm going to use ketoconazole for Cushing's. So. Yeah. And these, these these obviously work for a certain percentage of people, and some for some others they don't. Um, exactly. Yeah. That's why individualization of care is important. We know a lot about you know what what drug, what drugs will work for certain people. What drugs are going to have side effects that are okay for some but not others. For example, yeah, um, uh, the somatostatin analog drugs will cause uh, hyperglycemia in some patients with with uh, acromegaly. Yeah. So if you already have diabetes from your acromegaly, that's a poor choice of a drug. Somavert, on the other hand, improves blood sugar control in people with acromegaly. So if you already have diabetes and acromegaly, we probably should use Somavert instead. But the yeah. drug company is going to say you got to use this medicine analog first. Yeah. Uh, which is preposterous because that yeah. doesn't allow for the individualization of care. You know, and I think the other thing that happens, and as I listen to you, and I have now worked with you for, for almost 10 years and PWN and 14 years as my physician, that uh, it 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 these are these are complicated man matters and they it are. requires super super specialists. You have to have you have to be well educated to make decisions on this. And I'm guessing that the guy that's sitting in the insurance company doesn't have the years of experience that you or any of the other doctors that I've met in the in the neuroendocrine world have. So somebody's making a decision that's like you're saying, not qualified to make it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. And you have to, 
with all with all due respect to all parties involved, some of the physicians who are doing the reviewing for these companies are family practice doctors who yeah they've never practiced reason, endocrine yeah, never practiced endocrine and for one reason or another aren't practicing family medicine either and they're semi-retired and this is a gig to sort of make some extra money yeah and I don't fault them for that and I think they're probably thinking of themselves as altruistic but they really don't have a business in and and doing this they call it a peer-to-peer review but we're not really peers when I'm a pituitary super specialist having yeah. spent 33 years doing it and they did family medicine encompassing a practice that I wouldn't be able to do today you know yeah. because of the, the breadth of the work that they I, did I, so yeah I, and chances are that, yeah chances are they've, they've seen very few if at all if any very few patients with uh in real life with pituitary disease exactly I mean yeah. I remember when you and I did that presentation at the ACE the American uh Clinical, um, what's it? A A C E, American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, and there was a lot of endocrinologists in the audience when we made our presentation. And you told me, I'm sure that half any half of this audience has never seen. You're the first uh, acromegaly patient they've ever seen. In, it, yeah, know, exactly. and these are endocrinologists, right? So imagine that. So, you know, it's a real thing, and. Um, I, I remember a number of years ago, one of the UCSF faculty members who trained in endocrinology at UCSF, one of the best hospitals in the world, you know? Yeah. We have the biggest pituitary center in, in the United States as far as numbers of patients going to surgery is concerned. And yeah. um, so this doctor trained there. She was on faculty and uh, she was leaving the institution to go to work for Kaiser. And Kaiser told her that they wanted her to focus on pituitary disease. And she said, I don't really know much about pituitary disease. I'm going to take some time and spend some time rounding with and in clinic with Blevins. So she came to my clinic and she went on rounds with us. And one particular morning, maybe it was her first morning on rounds, we went over to the hospital to see a patient who'd had surgery and the patient had acromegaly. And she leaves the room and says, oh my God, I can't believe this. And I says, what's what's up? Uh, She says, that patient had acromegaly. I said, yes. She said, I've been on faculty for like five years and I trained here for three years and I've never seen a patient with acromegaly. And she's a general endocrinologist. So when you're going to a general endocrinologist for your acromegaly or your Cushing's, understand that they may not have seen many people with your condition and you really truly need to seek the advice of an expert, even if it's a one-time consultation uh, by Zoom or whatever, or you go somewhere to see someone, that's it's worth having someone who has expertise in this arena to um, uh, sort of evaluate uh, your overall situation and make recommendations to your primary endocrinologist, who mostly focuses usually on diabetes and thyroid disease. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. All good things. So, well, I think that the, the you know, the to really summarize the discussion, I think it's important. Engagement is really important. We know, uh, you know, we want people to engage with us, uh, to write to us and let us know. I think knowing examples of how the issues they have with with insurance companies and, and, and medications and treatment, all of these journeys that people go through as they get uh, diagnosed with a pituitary disease are important for us because the more insight we have, the more ideas we can generate to try to support and educate and make sure that, you know, that people that get the, the, 
the uh, medications they need and with a minimum amount of uh, of complications. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, so one of you the other, out there. One of the other things I wanted to talk about was yeah. uh, the two occasions this week. It's been an interesting week to think about the medical, yeah. non the medical stuff. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you two quick scenarios. One of them, a, pa a doctor, a patient said a doctor said, uh, well, I didn't need growth hormone. They thought it was still research. The truth of the matter is growth hormone was approved in about 1995 in this country for adults. So it's not still research. Yeah. This is yeah. 2023. And then I heard, uh, overheard a conversation about physicians who had been educated that 10%, 8 to 10%, their studies really range from 5 to 10%, but on average, 8 to 10% of people with new onset type 2 diabetes mellitus probably have underlying Cushing's, whether it be pituitary disease or adrenal disease. Interesting. And the, and the push is to screen new onset type 2 diabetes mellitus patients or maybe those with diabetes and weight gain or diabetes and hypertension for Cushing's. And um, that's remarkable. If you can find 10 per, up to 10% of people in a per, certain disease state with an underlying disease that caused the diabetes in the first place, and then you can treat that underlying disease and make the diabetes go away, you should be, you should be turning over the dirt and trying to find those cases, right? Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, there's a huge physician attitude that, oh, well, that would be too much extra work to do on my patients to screen those patients just to find a few people with the disease. But it's 10%. <laughs> So I'm thinking like, what in the heck is wrong with the mind of the physician today? Saying that growth yeah. hormone is still research, even though it's been approved for 25 years or more, and that 10% is not high enough number of patients to screen for a disease that may, you may radically change that patient's life for the better if you find it in that 10% of people. You know, is... I don't like this physician mindset, and I think this comes from several places. One, doctors are overworked and busy, and there's a shortage and too many patients to see. The doctors yeah. are getting, doctors getting lazy and don't want to learn new tricks. And, and I think if the thing I wanted to say to our patients is if you ever hear a physician say something like that, go see another doctor. Yeah. Find another doctor because that's uh, if a doctor ever tells you something is research or they don't think you have it, so they don't want to do the test, go see somebody else. Yeah, whatever you can to we, to bail and find another physician. We've we've heard a lot of stories of people doing that, and finally somebody finds something with them. I know you have cases, people coming to you, uh, where the doctors couldn't find the the tumor five years ago, and you say it was there five years ago. Yeah, I can exactly. see it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that those are that's those are well, yeah. So would you attribute attribute that to? Maybe it's the te technology and medication, or the auto, maybe more, more guidelines or automated guidelines. The computer has spit something up that says, "Well, not required, not required." So the doc, it's easy for the doctor to say, "Oh, you don't need this test. I, yeah. I don't even have time to think about it. Why would you need it?" I think or I'm not aware. I think physicians are becoming apathetic. When, when we were in our training, you know, we were taught what's the differential diagnosis, meaning what all could this be. Yeah. And I still try to think that way. If someone presents with something, okay, what are the possibilities? Let's work through it. Let's try to understand that. And you, um, you have to do that, but physicians get away from that. So, so do you think that, for example, some, something like acromegaly, and I know, you know, in my case, I was so many years undiagnosed, but do you think that that 
is the primary reason that a doctor doesn't put it in the list of possibilities. Exactly. So if, if sooner rather it, than later. Exactly. You need Suspecting to think, it. The suspicion. Is there a syndrome here? What can tie it all together? What are the underlying uh, causes? Yeah, and then what are the potential causes for that? It's yeah. a it's a way of thinking. So, for example, I saw a patient today who, wonderful gentleman, who had a uh, situation where uh, he had surgery for uh, a lesion near his pituitary gland. I won't go into the details, but he was referred to me just to make sure his pituitary functions were normal. Uh, because his testosterone levels were low. So we got our full panel and his pituitary functions were totally normal. And you look at his testosterone and you're like, yes, it's low. His LH and FSH levels were high. Well, the doctors who referred didn't know the pattern. That's a pattern of someone who has a primary testicular problem. Mm -hmm. The uh, testosterone levels are low, the LH and FSH are high. So I was telling my team before we saw him, you know, he probably has a testicular issue here. We've got to figure out what's going on. Yeah. The first question I asked him got the answer. I said, did you ever have mumps when you were younger? Oh, yeah, I had mumps, and it sort of settled in my testicles, and one of them shriveled up and went away. I said, there you go. That's why yeah. you have a low testosterone, and your pituitary is responding appropriately, making LH and FSH. That's because I consider the pattern, the pathophysiology yeah. pattern of the lab studies, and then you think about the differential diagnosis. It could be mumps. It could be chemotherapy. It could be falling on a bicycle and injuries testicle it could be born with an undescended testis or having a testicular twist or called torsion so you start down the list of the things it could be that's the differential diagnosis and that's how you solve medical problems what could it be what pattern am i seeing here that would help me figure out what it could be and how what sort of a conclusion do we draw from all the information we get from talking to a patient and looking at the labs mm -hmm. i don't think that these physicians who refuse to evaluate these things or treat are going to be thinking that way. And to me, that's the tip of the iceberg. If someone says growth hormones research, guess what? That's just the start of their negative attitudes about patient care, the things they should do as a physician. Yeah. If they don't want to work up for Cushing's. They're not going to be working up for other things that, that you might need work up as well. So they're probably going to miss stuff. So that's what I mean is when you have a doctor that says something like that, that doesn't make any sense, get away, find yeah. another one. With yeah. that said, sometimes physicians are giving patients good advice, you know. Yeah. And uh, well, it's, if, if they say if they say you don't need any further workup for Cushing's, they probably have a good rationale for that. Ask for the rationale. Yeah. Uh, but it, and you'll find out whether they're just lazy and don't want to do it, or whether or not they're um, a person who simply uh, is uh, is secure of, of their, themselves and really knows what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even even I make mistakes, and even sometimes my attitudes are are not on target. I, I had a very interesting patient that uh, um, basically has adrenal hyperplasia and has a known history of hyperaldosteronism and is on treatment for that from her adrenal hyperplasia. Was told she had hyperaldosteronism. We saw her to evaluate her for a number of things, and one of them was that she had a high cortisol level. And it's like, okay, this doesn't make sense, but I get the sense that she's stressed or whatever. Mm -hmm. She's a very intellectual person. And uh, she finally told me, she says, I think I have something called Conishing's syndrome. It's a combination of Con syndrome and Cushing's. Well, I've never heard of it. I don't think you have it. Yeah, it's not that. Ever... 
Yeah, that was my response. And yeah. I need to figure out if you have Cushing's and why you have Cushing's and your hyperaldo is under good treatment, but there's no way you could have this disorder. Yeah. I wasn't taught that. I've never seen it, never heard of it, you know. And she just kept sticking with it, finally to the point where I said, I don't really have anything more I can offer to you, you know, uh, get a second opinion. And I felt bad about saying that. So I thought, you know, get off your lazy butt and, and see what you can find out. Guess what? Reported in 2016, a number of cases, this seems to be a real disorder. And I think she's got it. So I wrote her back and said, you know what? I'm sorry. Good for I, you. I, I think I can help you. <laughs> I want to yeah. be your doctor again. I know you're going to go see somebody else. And you, you sort of dismissed me when I dismissed you. But can I please be your doctor again? <laughs> so... Now we have our own treatment and the numbers look fantastic. When, so, wow. Well, there's nothing, uh, you know, so I learned be... from that, you know, I'm yeah, 62 yeah. and I made a mistake and I learned yeah. from it. You have to sort of yeah. own it and, and try to do the right thing by the patient. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, and now we're trying to help her in some other ways too. But, uh, you know, she being a, you know, a, a, a wiser, older person stayed on me about that. And she taught me some things, not only about conditioning syndrome, but also about the practice of medicine and, and uh, listening to patients because I think mm -hmm. that even though I try very hard and most people would say I do a pretty good job of it I think we can yeah. all do better as physicians to yeah. sort of be I think, a little open-minded I, th I think you're right that you know you've mentioned it a few times in our discussion today that the system is what's also making physicians you know act the way they do we have a system that that it's changed like you're saying seven minutes with a patient or 15 minutes with a patient. And uh, a lot of it is, is time typing or, or, yeah. you know, or doing administrative issues. Well, so it is, it's changed that. And I think that maybe needs to go back a little bit. People need yeah. to throttle back and spend more time um, with each patient, if that would be possible to yeah, listen. I, yeah. It's interesting how that has changed. I'll, I'll have to admit with Zoom meetings and all of that. The, the it's getting better, it, no? Well, the beauty of it is that I get to spend time in the morning looking through the charts before I start clinic. And then if I finish a visit early, I can look at the chart. Probably for every 10 minutes I spend with a patient, I'm spending another 10 minutes behind the scene looking at their MRI, comparing it to old MRIs, yeah. looking at their labs, comparing it to old labs and things like that. And uh, so, you know, I may start a visit with, hey, I looked at your MRI and, you know, then here, here's what your labs show and your drugs are good. And the patient may have a five minute visit, but I've maybe put 10 or 15 minutes into that yeah. visit yeah. with them. What I've started doing here lately is uh, trying to get back to the old way, which was a patient would come to the office visit and I and I they bring their MRI and I look at the MRI there. So I try to now do about half my visits of I'm not even going to look at that MRI till I've got the patient. Because I get to yeah. spend more time chatting with them and chatting about their lives and their kids and their cats and dogs and their yeah. jobs and, and whatever nonsense comes up, whether they're helicopter pilot like this guy that yeah. I talked to this week. You yeah. Know, so I kind of like doing that. And But the interesting thing is when you look at the press Ganey scores um, and things like that, what patients write about their visits. So here before I'll preface it with this, one of the things that I like to do is give you my opinion based on my review of data that I order and arrange for and review. Yeah. I look at outside review stuff too, and I'm not going to let another doctor's opinion influence me. So just because Dr. Jones thinks you have Cushing's doesn't mean I'm going to agree with him. I agree. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, you're here for my opinion. You're going to get my opinion. So I'm not going to read your past chart all the time. I'm going to look at the data, but I'm going to ask you questions. And one of the things that patients say is, well, he didn't know my history before I came in. Well, I don't want to hear what Dr. Jones had to say. I want to hear what you have to say about your illness. I don't want to be influenced by the thought processes of some physician who has less experience in the field than I do. So it's interesting that patients don't understand that, that I may not have read their doctor's reports, but I've looked at their labs and their MRI, and I can give you my independent opinion, not influenced or biased by the the work of another man or a woman who's also opined on their case. Um, yeah. So, but that's that's one of the things where I get you know negative marks by patients. He didn't take the time to review my doctor's for, reports. Yeah. I'll, re, I'll I'd rather read what the patient wants to write to me about their symptoms beforehand than read to me what their doctor said and didn't know about. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh it's just trying to not be biased by prior workups and give people my honest opinion about what I think is an expert yeah. in that yeah. arena. But that that uh, that is something I, I usually I got a patient uh, yesterday who sent me like several pages of things to review before the visit. It made it very helpful because I reviewed it before the visit. When we got into the visit, we could focus on the matters at hand. I had to give him my opinion about things, but then we focused on the on the document and we were able to yeah. get through it really quickly because I was discussing most of it anyways with his visit. So uh, I like those kinds of things and uh, spending time on it. But spending more time with the patient is the goal. And I uh, try to do that by sometimes like several patients today looking at the MRI after I let them into the Zoom visit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fun because I get to show them the tumor and show them exactly what to look for because everybody looks at their films if they have the disc, but they don't know what they're looking at. Usually. Of course. <laughs> so I can take them on the grand tour of their tumor, so to speak, and uh, yeah. we can all be on the same level playing field then after that discussion. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. Wonderful. Well, do you believe that we've almost at the end of the hour? It's just gone so fast. It has, yeah. There's lots to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think uh, we're probably going to schedule. I know we we took a hiatus with the live talks, uh, but I think uh, these things are really wonderful to do. And, uh, you know, we encourage people to tune in and uh, you're going to get a recording. of the of this discussion as a podcast, so we encourage you to do that. Uh, I was also going to take the time to thank and remind everybody that you know we uh, we are a nonprofit organization and we're supported by uh, many different companies, and we thank our our contributors. Uh, and uh, we hope that uh, if you like what you're hearing, that you'll help us out. And if you'd like to donate, you know, just go to pituitary world news and uh, hit the donate button that's always helpful one yes one other thing i wanted to announce and uh, sort of when you said donate it's like we're going to have a deficit uh for our pituitary conference so yeah yeah yeah. um i think it's a good opportunity to say that on december 9th we're having a a pituitary world news slash ucsf pituitary conference at ucsf mission bay eight o'clock in the morning you can check out the site and learn more about that and, yeah, uh, and register. Right now, it's costing us more money than we brought in to pay for it. So <laughs> we don't charge registration. But if you know uh, of a person of good means who can donate, then please give them a call and tell them you want to want them to help us out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna have a bill. And uh, you know, Jorge and I put a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and money into this pituitary world news stuff, anyways. But uh, 
and we'll somehow figure out how to get it paid for. But um, I may have to, I may have to get on the knees and beg my chairman to cover it. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is never easy. something I would. It's never something I wouldn't do, but it's never easy too. Hey, you know, we were trying to raise yeah. money for this, we couldn't. Can you cover it? You know. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we were very much uh, happy to do a pituitary awareness day and talk about pituitary issues. We've got a good schedule with uh, all about four of my surgeons and myself giving talks and we have some small group breakouts and there'll be a lot of opportunity to engage with others. We have what, about 80 registrants so far? Yeah, we have about 80 people registered. Uh, we, we are going to announce it again this, uh, this, this week and next uh, and then the, and the, week, the following week. So people that missed it can see it. You can go to the front page and there's a link uh, in the events section to to learn more about it and register. It's also going to be virtual. So if, but we need you to register so we know who's coming and, uh, and how many people to, are going to come to the live uh, to, in person and then how many people are registered for the, for the virtual. So, Yeah, especially uh, anyway. live because we're going to have sandwiches or some kind of a lunch. Yeah, we're going to have some so, coffee yeah. and cookies and lunch. We, uh, we'll serve lunch for everybody and yeah. uh, it'll be a full day of presentations and then uh, small um, breakout groups that are going to be very, very interactive. So you're going to get a chance to to chat with some of the best pituitary doctors in the world. So if you can make it to San Francisco, do that. If not, join us live. I mean, virtually. It'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. And then uh, so, if not that, check out the podcasts after. The podcasts are few, always there. There'll yeah. be a few things that are going to be out there from that conference yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to publish all the presentations after the conference. But the, anyway, the, very, but... the very last thing I want to say is that we have now recorded two episodes of Grand Rounds. Uh, the yes. first one is on YouTube. Check out, type, type in Pituitary Grand Rounds on YouTube and you'll find it. The second one is, is in post uh, in production right now after post-filming. And we think it's going to be tremendous. It's a patient with Cushing's due to pituitary tumor. And uh, the first one is a non-functioning tumor. Uh, so we're excited that this series is uh, starting to ramp up. And I think it's going to be very educational to people. Whether you have those tumor types or not, you're going to learn about pituitary disease and the struggles that patients have dealing with this condition. So check out yeah. Pituitary Grand Browns on YouTube and on our yeah. site as well. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say that uh, you you have a there's a link to the episode one on the front page of Pituitary World News, and um, and then you can go or you can go directly to YouTube. Uh, you'll see you'll find more information if you come to the PWN because there's some you know related links that are really helpful on this on those articles. So anyway, well, Dr. Blevins, thanks for uh, an hour this afternoon. I thought it was a it was a great discussion. Yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, so let's close it out. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening. <laughs>